The first reading this morning is from Luke chapter 1, from verse 5 to 13. In the days of King Herod of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. Once, when he was serving as priest before God, and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now, at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people were praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified, and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. When Zechariah came out of the sanctuary, he could not speak. The second reading this morning is again from Luke chapter 1, verses 57 to 80. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown his great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, None of your relatives has this name. Then they began motioning to his father to find out what name he wanted to give him. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And all of them were amazed. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue freed, and he began to speak, praising God. Fear came over all their neighbours, And all these things were talked about throughout the entire hill country of Judea. All who heard them pondered them and said, What then will this child become? For indeed, the hand of the Lord was with him. Then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke this prophecy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has looked favourably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty saviour for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear 
in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. The child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day he appeared publicly to Israel. So, we're coming nearer the big day, the big birth. That of John the Baptist, of course. <laughs> Had to say that in this church, haven't I? I've been a Baptist church. So, Luke's Gospel says there are five features of the both of the birth infants, both um, of the birth infancy's narratives in the story, both Jesus and of John the Baptist. And this is what we've been seeing out playing in our readings, but also in our stories over the last couple of weeks from the nativities and the programs we've been watching, maybe. And that is the appearance of the angel, the response of fear, the divine message, an objection, and then a given a sign to guarantee the divine announcement. So let's think about our John the Baptist narrative now in the reading we just had. The angel appeared to Zachariah at the inner sanctuary of the temple. Then reported that Zachariah was fearful. Then the message came. He was going to turn people towards God to prepare a way for what was to come. Then the objection from Zachariah, we're too old to have a child. Both probably physically and emotionally and mentally probably. <laughs> then we get the objection for Zachariah. Sorry, then we get the angel proceeding to tell him he was going to be mute until the, until the birth. And then on the day that we have the final song that was burst out with the, after the complete infancy narrative was complete and the information was complete. Pray with me, please. Loving God, I pray that the words I speak and what I've prepared today would be a blessing amongst all around us. I pray the words have been from your lips and from your heart, and they are to be done justice to others around who listen. Amen. So, when looking at this story, I thought about, wow, it sounds very similar. In fact, there's some similarities I saw in the salt story, but yet something that's quite different, something that's comforting yet unsettling at the same time. And I think that's what Luke was trying to get across here. You've got the fact that you've got similar stories from the past Old Testament, things that you've been reading about up until this point over the, in the lectionary. You've got the couples with their expectations. So I'll start with the fact that they've both, both of these couples uh, have fulfilled their expectations in their community. Zachariah was a priest. Elizabeth, the daughter of a priest, who married, as she was expected to be married, another priest. 
They're both seen as righteous and blameless. Therefore, the birth of Zachariah echoes the stories of the very much of the old patriarchs of Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, Alnahiah, and Hannah. Zachariah is cho- then chosen by a lot to form the highest, the most important ceremony, the pinnacle of his lifetime, to do something that's only going to happen once, to go to the inner sanctuary. And this is probably, and this is his service to God, the most important time of his entire life. The final act of his duty, though, he's not able to do. There's the surprise. He's unable to pronounce the blessing of the people after being in the inner sanctuary. I'm sure it would have been very clear to those around him that something unexpected had happened in there. Again, it shows the similarities to the other prophets in the Bible. Daniel being unable to speak following an angelic appearance to him. So the announcement of John was not a new thing that God was doing. But the familiarity of the setting showed how the new thing meant that God had actually not forgotten Israel and the old customs. The second reading, thank you, then brings us to the birth, the circumcision, the blessing of John the Baptist. Here we have the neighbours rejoicing with Zachariah and Elizabeth. It shows the demonstration of God's mercy and power. At the, at the circumstance in the community's expectations for Elizabeth was to continue the naming custom and name him after her father's husband, therefore to be called Zachariah. In Judaism, the person's first name is incredibly significant. Names capture the essence of that person. I've always actually hated my name. I know that sounds weird, but I really have. But actually... When you get older, you start to realize it's important. Think about your names. Who gave it to you? You know? My, name's main, my name means B. <laughs> and actually, Zachariah himself, I said before, name, name means God has remembered. And Elizabeth means my God's oath. Therefore, choosing the name of their son is a very serious business. And I know I should focus on Zachary here, but I can't help think about Elizabeth at this time. You know, she must have found a way to find out that his name was going to be John somehow, whether through divine intervention or through Zachariah himself, because she went against the entire custom of that period to do something completely obscure she went against what they said she was like she chose a name that was not in her family or their family and it was the prerogative of the father to name him and she named him so one's going to say how amazing she was as a woman there and she wanted to name him John or God said to name him John And it means God has been gracious. We can agree with that, can't we, there? It was only then that Zachariah's tongue was freed and he was able to speak again. Then his blessing could finally be delivered quite a bit later than he originally planned. 
But this time, it was to the birth of John. Now we call this, it's traditionally it's called the Benedictus. And it li- again looks at that promises of David that was to be fulfilled. The people of Israel had long expected a deliverance. But the Benedictus alludes to the fact that this deliverance was not just about political deliverance from the Romans, but a deliverance from fear and serving of God. And the poem he reads gives us two descriptions of the role of John the Baptist, to prepare a way and bring knowledge of salvation to his people by forgiveness of sins. Zacharias' blessing ends with, to guide our feet with the way of peace. The blessing seeks to link inseparably salvation, redemption to peace. That is, God's people cannot have redemption without peace. Now, I went off on a bit of a tangent here, okay? and I wanted to think about how that affects us today. And I want to read a story about a woman called Sarah Pearl Benazara. She's a, I say woman, she's a young girl. She wrote a story in 2014 for the United Network of Young Peacemakers. And she's a young Jewish girl working for peace and trying to focus their society on their shared humanity. She wrote this story prior to giving a talk to Israeli and Palestinian young people during the 2014 Gaza war. And I felt it was quite apt to bring today. In it, she recounted her experience of going to Rwanda. And this is her story. Almost a million people were slaughtered in a hundred days in Rwanda. Neighbors killed neighbors, friends murdered friends, and colleagues chased colleagues. Men, women, and children lost their lives in the most violent way imaginable. The country was left in chaos. After the genocide, the country was left with over 120,000 people who had been detained because they took part in the killing of close to one million people. And to address this issue, the Rwandan government established a traditional community court system called Gakaka. The system would not only help the national justice system to judge these people, but it would develop a reconciliation and forgiveness process at the grassroots level of society. The Gakakas, I apologize for my pronunciation here, courts, gave the lowest sentences when the person who was accused of taking part in the genocide showed repentance and willing to ask for the forgiveness to the community. Prisoners who confessed their crimes would agree to face the surviving members of the family they destroyed and would be allowed home with community service orders. People faced their victims and asked for forgiveness. People faced their torturers and forgave. Today, they live side by side. We know Rwanda is not a perfect country and its society still has much to recover from that genocide. But it's, still, but it's facing its past and it's promoting something that people very hear, it says, I hardly hear in my region. Forgiveness. Forgiving means that we acknowledge that the other side is human, that their children and ours deserve to live safely and peacefully. But forgiven, I stand for the future of my region. I hope I will be forgiven too. 
The people I meet in Rwanda prove to me that forgiveness exists and that it is possible. And for me, like this story and like other stories, like in South Africa, for instance, another place for this, I think it shows that in order for peace to be established, just like the Benedictus says, redemption is needed. Now, peace is the traditional theme, as we've seen um, from my readings when we talk about the Benedictus. But here, in this lecture, we have our associated love. Its association is implicit in so many ways. For example, Galatians 5, we have the fruits of the Spirit, focusing on love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We have 2 Corinthians 13, rejoice, I am for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Jude 1, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And this goes on and on in the Bible, where the two are connected. Peace and love are also the two tenets of the hippie movement from the 60s. I teach it, it's quite fun. (laughs) Hendrix, I think, says it best when he said, when the power of love overcomes the love of power, The world will know peace. Let me repeat that. When the power of love overcomes the love of power, the world will know peace. Amen to that. Love is the absolute answer to gain peace. When we hate one another, there's division. We forget that other people are also human. They bleed. They have children. They sleep, eat. They have feelings just like us. When we hate, we forget that person, about that person having family and friends. When we put power over the lives of others, we ignore that they have lives. When people in power decide to take the rights away from minorities, or reduce the amount of money given to poor families, have, for instance, in welfare. They aren't thinking about love. When love is gone, we get destruction, solitude, despair. When people who love division and power, we get hatred, we get war. And evil permeates our society through selfishness and greed. But... We're on the hopeful side of the story. The Benedictus, and the story I read to you, when we start forgiving and seeing us as other in others, when we get redemption, this is when we get love. This is when we get peace. Who can argue the love that was shown in this story? The love of the father and the mother who so desperately wanted a child of their own, despite their age. The love of God. They had actually dutifully went about their business without complaining to God, but they had no child. Even after the time came when Elizabeth was no longer able to have children. 
or the love of God shown to them, that they were to be chosen to have this child who was the forbearer of God's own son, to carry a message about Christ to the world, which was the ultimate love story. Jesus is not the Messiah who just conquers Israel's enemies through war and violence. He's not that Messiah. Jesus is instead is a Messiah who conquers violence itself through the death and resurrection. He is the one who guides our feet to the way of peace. Jesus is the love that saw those at the bottom of society become the most important. A tax collector, a woman of ill repute, fishermen, ordinary fishermen, a love that is transformative, is one that looks beyond the, beyond the obvious and banal. It is a love that turns everything in society, what they knew, around. Jesus shone love in the least likely of places. Throughout his ministry, we see scenes of Jesus bringing compassion to the sick and those deemed unclean. We see him having dinner with those who are the outcasts. And they experience divine, unconditional, steadfast love. And that is what we have in Jesus. So as we come to Christmas Day tomorrow, let us remember Jesus' redemptive love. As we sit and open our presents, eat our Christmas dinner, watch our Christmas films. But, but also remember that it's love that brings peace, particularly as we see the destructiveness in the world. Let us remember the love that brings peace. I'm not going to end on my words. I'm going to end on the words of Hugh Grant from Love Actually. Because I think it's so appropriate now. Whenever I get gloomy with the state of the world, I think about the arrivals great of Heathrow Airport. General opinions starting to make out that we live in a world of hatred and greed. But I don't see that. It seems to me that love is everywhere. Often it's not particularly dignified or newsworthy. It's always there. Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, husbands and wives, boyfriends and girlfriends, old friends. When the plane hits the Twin Towers, as far as I know, none of the phone calls from the people on board were messages of love, of hate or revenge. They were all messages of love. If you look for it, I've got a sneaky suspicion. Love actually is all around. Amen. Debbie, thank you. A confession. Liz and I sat and watched Love, actually, last night. We're just going to take a few moments to respond to what we've heard. So just close your eyes. And can I invite you for a moment to think of those people in your life who have loved you?
and think of those people whom you have loved. And know that even at their very best, these moments of human love are but an echo of the great love that God has for you in Jesus Christ as God reaches out to you to the depth of your being to tell you that you are loved. Please be seated. We're going to hear a poem now before uh, prayers of intercession are brought. This is a poem called The Sound of Hope, and it's written by the Reverend Sarah Speed. We've been singing a sad song for quite some time. The melody sinking with our heartbeats the lyrics stamped to the front of our minds. You say sad songs are honest. It's hard to disagree, for sad songs tap us on the shoulder. Sad songs remind us of the hundred different corners heartbreak could be behind. But I don't have it in me to sing a sad song forever. So despite the news, despite the aches in my body, despite the phone call last night that says she's waiting for the test results, despite yesterday's shooting, despite the unknown and unchanged, I am going to sing a song of hope. Like a canary in a snowstorm, I don't need another song of what is. I need a song of what could be. So sing with me. Our voices may get drowned out by the wind, but surely someone will ask, was that a flash of colour in the snow? Was that the sound of hope? So now let's bring our prayers of longing for a better world before God. This morning in our intercessions, I'm using a prayer written by a Church of Scotland minister called Marjorie McCaskill who was one of the contributors to Roots for Worship when I was editing that resource. And it's based around John the Baptist. It also is a responsive prayer. So when I say, make straight the road, will you respond, prepare the way of the Lord? Make straight the road, prepare the way of the Lord. So let us pray. From the hungry comes the message that all will be filled. 
Make straight the road, prepare the way of the Lord. From the thirsty comes the news that all will be satisfied. Make straight the road, prepare the way of the Lord. From the lame comes the dance that all will perform. Make straight the road, prepare the way of the Lord. From the blind comes the vision that all will follow. Make straight the road, prepare the way of the Lord. From the poor comes the wealth that all will share. Make straight the road, prepare the way of the Lord. From the oppressed comes the freedom that all will know. Make straight the road, prepare the way of the Lord. Out of the wilderness, joy. Out of the earth, water. Out of the darkness, light. Out of the shadows, vision. Out of the suffering, life. Out of the woman, child. Make straight the road, prepare the way of the Lord. For a child comes to lead his people, and all creation will know it together. Make straight the road, prepare the way of the Lord. Amen. Almighty God of hidden hope, grant us grace. Loving Christ of the coming kingdom, grant us faith. Loving spirit of new life, grant us peace. And may the blessing of the presence of God, creator, redeemer and sustainer, be with us all today and evermore. Amen. <laughs>